Hey guys, scroll all the way to the bottom of the show notes and check out some of the sponsors that we have for this episode. Uh, if you're looking for an all-in-one cloud-based dental software, go with Carestech. They're giving you guys an exclusive offer and you can check that out in the show notes below. Or if you need a fully digital US-based dental lab, then go with Dandy. They sponsor this episode too and they're giving you guys a free three-shape trio scanner and $250 in lab credit. Or if you are looking for phone services, right? Maybe you're looking for phones, a phone system, or a VoIP service, then Mango Voice is giving startups completely free services. Or if you're an up and running practice already looking to switch phone providers, then they're giving you up to three months of free service completely free. So you can go in the show notes below and check that out. All you gotta do is just scroll all the way to the very bottom of the show notes and check out the deals that they got going on just for you. And guys, that's a fantastic way to support the podcast is by checking out the sponsors, scheduling a free demo, or if you like what you see with them, then you can sign up to their services. Just use the links in the show notes below, or if you want, just mention the Dental Marketer podcast uh, when you're talking to them and they'll give you the exclusive deal. All right, let's get into this episode. What's up, guys? Welcome to the Dental Marketer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Arias. And in this episode, I mean, guys, this is a fantastic episode. I'm speaking with David Harris, who is the CEO of Prosperident, and he is focused mainly on private investigating and embezzlement. There are three preconditions for people to steal. So three things have to be in place. The first is normally they're under some kind of pressure. And sometimes might it's financial, like they're, they're two months behind in their mortgage payments and they're you know, about to have their house repossessed. Mm. Sometimes it's emotional where they see their friends getting ahead faster than they are that bothers them. So there's pressure. The second thing they need is opportunity. They need to have the ability to steal. And it's pretty easy in most practices to steal. Opportunity is not, not generally a scarce commodity. And the third thing they need is the ability to rationalize. And rationalization is when you temporarily suspend your belief system. In other words, we all learned when we were three years old on the playground that you didn't take other people's things. And what a thief has to say is, I know that in general, stealing is wrong. However, the situation I'm in is a special case because, and then whatever they say after the because is the rationalization. So those are the, those are the three ingredients that must be there for embezzlement to happen. Can those factors suddenly appear with a very long-term employee? Absolutely, they can. And we see a lot of people who've been working for a practice for 20 years or more, and they probably weren't stealing for most of that time. Such a good episode. And I speak from personal experience because I remember when I used to be uh, working in the front office when I first kind of came on, there was a office manager there who was working with the practice for literally over 30 years. I mean, the doctor trusted her with her life. And little did we know she was stealing. <laughs> she was stealing for years and it kind of was almost like the doctor didn't want to believe it, but she believed it and then just like fired her, let her go. Right. But in my mind, I've always kind of wondered, like, how can we catch this early on? I know it's kind of tough, especially, you know, when you're first starting off, like when you're in the hiring process of hiring someone, you're kind of more skeptical with them. Then as you gain trust, things happen and then they start stealing your stuff happens. Right. And then they start stealing 
and you kind of almost don't want to believe it or it's almost so minuscule, so small that you don't even notice it. So in this episode, David lets us know all the background about that, why that happens, three things that have to be in place in order for people to steal, your team to steal. He also discusses how social media plays a part of that now today. He talks to us about two ways that discovery can happen when we are kind of having like an inkling or like we're wondering like, okay, this person, something's up with them. How can we discover that they're starting to steal from us? Besides obviously hiring like, you know, Prosperity at the company or, or, or a company that can help with figuring this out like a private investigator. And then we also talk about hiring, right? Let's just say you're a startup because I know a lot of you guys are and you're a startup and you're like starting to hire people. What do you need to do in order to make sure the person you are hiring is a good candidate? Let's take away the stuff like, okay, yeah, they have a great personality. They have worked at this one office. Uh, they uh, obviously are a great dental assistant because they have the certs. Take away all that stuff. What do we want to look at? Besides that, right, that will give us red flags. We're like, no, they're going to steal either now or eventually from us. That way we can save that headache. So he talks to us on how we can put our detective hat on. We also discuss some common cases uh, that he's encountered, that he's seen a lot of people encounter. We also discuss the kind of um, mental attitude about this. We discuss narcissist and narcissist sociopath and sociopath and how you can kind of determine oh my gosh, I might have a sociopath working for me and so forth. We also discuss serial embezzlers. And guys, get this. Make sure you go to the show notes and look at the video and look at David's background because those two ladies on his background are actually people who are in jail now for embezzling uh, practice. Very, very interesting stuff. So this is a great episode, guys. I highly recommend you bookmark it, you revisit it to make sure you, you take notes, right? especially on the discovery, how you can discover what happens, and the three things that have to be in place for people to start stealing. Uh, so yeah, without further delay, here is David Harris. David, how's it going? It's going well. For our listeners, can you give us a little bit of a background? Tell us a little bit about your past, your present. How did you get to where you are today? Absolutely. Well, maybe I'll start with the present and work backward. I'm the CEO of a company called Prosperident. And what Prosperident does, Michael, is we work with dentists on the issue of embezzlement. In other words, staff typically stealing from the practice owner. Prosperidan has about 25 people. We've been in business now for, believe it or not, 33 years. <laughs> and we only, we only serve dentists. We don't work with any other community. So that's today. <laughs> um, how did I get there? Well, I'd like to tell you I had a master plan and I followed it. The, the, the truth is uh, maybe a little more uh, distorted than that. And we're going back now, believe it or not, to 1989. And in 1989, before that, I spent some time in the Army. I was an investigator for a bank. I had quit my job with the bank. I was sitting at home watching TV and trying not to think about the future. And my phone rang. It was a guy I'd been in high school with, who is now a dentist. And he said, I think my front desk person is stealing from me. And I really don't have anyone else to call this guy's timing was perfect. Back in 1989, there was no such thing as a, as a video recorder. So the only stuff on TV was whatever the network decided to give you. In you know, August, that wasn't much. So I was bored out of my tree. And this kind of seemed interesting. So I said to my friend, sure, I'll meet you tonight after work. And we'll get to the bottom of what's going on. 
So I went to his practice. This was also before practices were computerized. So there was an old system called Pegboard that was kind of the predecessor to practice management software. Okay. And I didn't know a whole lot about dentistry. In fact, I really didn't know anything about dentistry, but I, I saw fairly quickly what she was doing. And I told my friend, and he was quite happy to know that, well, he wasn't happy to know that she was stealing, but he was quite happy to at least be able to stop it. And he said to me, can you please come back tomorrow morning because I'm going to fire her and I really don't want to tackle that on my own. And I knew I'd be as bored the next day as I was that day. So I said, sure. Mm-hmm. So I came, we fired her. It was, it was kind of uneventful. My friend promised to buy me dinner that I'm still waiting for. And I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and walked away and said, well, that was kind of interesting, but I didn't really see a career path. Mm-hmm. Well, two weeks later, lightning struck. And what happened was I was going into my old dentist's office for an appointment. Just imagine what went through my mind. I had my hand on my doctor's front door. I looked through the glass panel in the door and guess who was sitting at his front desk? The same woman I helped fire two weeks earlier. I said something very rude. I turned around and ran into a payphone because in those days you didn't carry a cell phone. <clears throat> Called the practice, used a little bit of deception to get past the gatekeeper and get my doctor on the phone. And I explained what was going on and he hired me on the spot. And that was my first client. Wow. Okay. Wait. So did you already get your work done that day or no? Uh, no, no, I, I, I never, I didn't go in the office because of course she, she would recognize me because I helped fire her two weeks ago. So I just, I just ran the other way and went to a phone. I called the, called my doctor when I, when he picked up the phone, I said, I, I'm David Harris. I'm the guy who's supposed to be in your chair right now. Let, let me explain why I'm not. And I told him about the time bomb that was ticking away at his front desk. And that's when he hired me to investigate. Okay. By the time I, by the time I finished that work, the local Henry Shine rep had realized what I was doing, and he had a couple of other clients or, and some concerns. And suddenly, I was in business. Nice. And from that point on, it skyrocketed. Well, no, it it grew slowly at first, and the limiting factor originally, you know, before computerization, was that you had to be on site to do the work. And so uh, the way we would do investigation before practices computerized was. You'd show up at 5.30 at night, the doctor would meet you at the practice, lock you in, and you'd have to be gone by, say, 7 o'clock the next morning in order to be gone before the staff got it. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. But really changed things for us was ha- happened in the, in the middle of the first decade of the 21st century, and that's when you suddenly gained the ability to move data around electronically. And that's now, when everything changed. Yeah, because now geography is irrelevant to us. I have investigators scattered all over the country. You know, I've got everything from California to Florida to to Washington State. You know, we, we, we really scatter across the U.S., but it doesn't matter where they live. An investigator in California can easily do, a, do an investigation in Tennessee. Because everything's computerized now, right? Exactly. We can do it at a distance. And that, that's what really changed things. Gotcha. Okay. And then from that point on, so how long have you, has Prosperity been like in business then? Well, uh, in, in August of 2022, we will celebrate our 33rd anniversary. Oh, that's nice. That's interesting. Okay. So then it's been your area of expertise is embez- is private, inve- what, what, what would you say it is? Well, um, I'm, I'm both a forensic accountant and a private investigator. Okay. I'm triple certified in, in forensic accounting. And I also have a, have a private investigator license. What does that mean? Triple certified? Um, three different, you know, it would be like being a periodontist and a prosthodontist. Oh, okay. So forensic accountant and what was the other one? 
Private investigation. Private investigation. All right. And this is interesting. This is really, really interesting because we hear about it. I've actually worked in a practice where it happened. And I mean, like, I don't mean to sound mean or anything, but I was kind of happy that she left because she was always like super mean to everybody and, and myself. But she left and the doctor was like insanely shocked because she's been practicing with her since for 30 years, 40 years. And it just started. And in my mind, I'm like, has it always been happening or just now? Like, what, what are your thoughts? Like, what, where do you see, like, why is this happening? How often does it happen? Things like that. Well, there are three preconditions for people to steal. So three things have to be in place. The first is normally they're under some kind of pressure. And sometimes might it's financial, like they're, they're two months behind in their mortgage payments and they're, you know, about to have their house repossessed. Mm. Sometimes it's emotional where they see their friends getting ahead faster than they are and that bothers them. So there's pressure. The second thing they need is opportunity. They need to have the ability to steal. And it's pretty easy in most practices to steal. Opportunity is not, not generally a scarce commodity. And the third thing they need is the ability to rationalize. And rationalization is when you temporarily suspend your belief system. In other words, we all learned when we were three years old on the playground that you didn't take other people's things. And what a thief has to say is, I know that in general, stealing is wrong. However, the situation I'm in is a special case because. And then whatever they say after the because is the rationalization. So those are the, those are the three ingredients that must be there for embezzlement to happen. Can those factors suddenly appear with a very long-term employee? Absolutely, they can. And we see a lot of people who've been working for a practice for 20 years or more, and they probably weren't stealing for most of that time. And then the right combination of the perfect storm, if you want, took place, and then they start stealing. We also see people called serial embezzlers. These are people who kind of make a career out of stealing. You know, you'll see some of them who have worked in, you know, three or even five, or in one case that I was involved with 15 different practices, stealing from the wall. And just on the bulletin board behind me are a couple of thieves. The, the, the one uh, named Danielle Powers worked in three practices in the Las Vegas area, stole from all the, there was probably other stuff before that, but three that we know of. So these are real people in that who I'm looking at right now? Those are real people. Serial uh-huh. embezzle embezzlers. Those two, we we those two got prison sentences this month. Wow. Okay. So yeah. those are serial embezzlers right now. For our audience listening, if you want to scroll down in the show notes, you can definitely see the the video behind Ed David. There's two pictures, and so you caught them. I don't want to say how, but like, how does the doctor start to know, or do they start to like say like, okay, collections is we're not getting ahead here. What's what's happening? Um, there are two ways that discovery happens. One is some kind of financial indicator. And you mentioned what, you know, there could be lots of other ones potentially. Maybe the day-end report that the software produces doesn't line up with the bank deposit. Or maybe doctor is wondering why their receptionist BMW is newer and bigger than the doctor's. There could be a lot of financial indicators. And the other possibility is behavioral indicators. Mm. He has acted in certain well-defined ways. For example, a lot of thieves are very reluctant to take vacation because when they're on vacation, suddenly they lose control over how information moves through through their practice. And that sometimes gets them caught. A big case I worked on very early in my career was in a, a periodontal practice and the thief broke her leg skiing on the weekend. 
So Monday morning, for the first time in anybody's memory, this woman was not in the bracket. And around 10 a.m., one of the receptionists came into the senior doctor's operatory. She disturbed him, which was a big no-no in their culture. <clears throat> she took him out of the operatory and she said, doctor, there's something weird going on here. She'd gotten very, three very strange phone calls that morning from patients about their accounts. Had the office manager not broken her leg and had she been in the practice, those things would have come to her. And of course, she caused the discrepancies that patients were seeing. So there's no chance she's going to go and uh, report herself to the doctor. But it was, a, it was a chance occurrence like that. Another well-identified behavioral characteristic is that thieves like to be alone when they steal. Partly because they don't want to be observed and partly because stealing takes concentration and it's hard to do that when the phone's ringing and, and patients are moving around the office and so on. So a lot of thieves will structure their, their lives so that they get some alone time. They might show up half an hour before everybody else, or maybe they stay late or they slide into the office quietly on the weekend. Mm -hmm. And that can be kind of tricky because you're like thinking like, oh man, you know, David is, is a go-getter. They're there early. They're, they're, they're the last ones to leave. Like we, we really enjoy them. But these other indicators have been have been, uh, I guess, like discovered now. Uh, I want to rewind a little bit. And uh, you mentioned the three things that have to be in place for people to steal. And the second one was emotional, where you see like their friends getting ahead, right? Or they see their friends getting ahead, things like that. Did you notice by any chance, David, like has embezzlement increased since social media has blown up? The long-term trend is definitely increasing. And, and I'll, I'll give you some basic numbers, Michael. Um, mm -hmm. So in 2019, the American Dental Association did a study. And what they did was they asked 17,000 dentists, have you been embezzled? Mm -hmm. And I'll give you the good news first. 53% of the respondents said, no, I don't think so, because it's hard to be absolute about this. So you know what's coming. The other 47% said, yes, I've been stolen. And what the ADA did next was ask a follow-up question. And the follow-up question was, okay, how many times? And now it gets a little bit interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, so 23% of those surveyed, in other words, about half those who said, sorry, 27%, about half those who said, yes, I've been stolen from, said once as far as I know. You had 11% who had been stolen from twice, 2% three times, and this is the one that makes me shake my head, 8% of the respondents four or more times. So if you do a little histogram and you take 27% who said once times one and 11% times two and 2% times three and 8% times 4, you come up with 86 embezzlements that have already happened for 100 days. Wow. How does that happen, David? How does that happen to where, what do you say to that when someone's like, you've been stolen more than four times? Like how, I guess, like bl blindsided are you? Is, is that the scenario or like how oft, I mean, how hard is it to be like absolute that someone is stealing? How hard is it to to know for sure that somebody's stealing? Because I would assume if like, they're like, okay, it's four times that they've stolen from me or more. Like this person is either like super trustworthy or, or yeah. like gullible. I, I, I think in, in short answer to your question, uh, some people keep making the same mistakes over and over again. What, one thing that dentists do a terrible job of is background checking people before they hire. I'm going to give you a really sobering statistic. And all those people in the audience, especially those who are new dentists or new practice owners, need to hear this. 70 million Americans. So that is one in four adults has a criminal record. Has a criminal record. Most dentists hire people without doing a criminal record check. And there's, there's more to background 
checking or pre-employment screening than doing a criminal record check. But even that really basic, easy step is typically not done. But to answer your question about trends, so in, in 2007, sorry, in 2019, 47% of dentists had been invested. The ADA asked the same question 12 years earlier, so 2007. And in 2007, 35% of dentists had been invested. In other words, over a 12-year period, the prevalence of embezzlement went up by about a third. Mm-hmm. Uh, was social media the driver there to, an- to, to answer your question? I'm not sure, but I have to think it was a fact. That's what I was thinking. When you mentioned like emotional and, you know, like, oh my God, my friend's getting ahead. You know what I mean? People posting up their highlights and things like that. It makes you wonder, like, is there some type of envy? Is there some type of comparison where they're like, you know what? I'm not getting paid enough. I asked the doctor for a raise. They said, maybe next year for uh, once we reach our goal, all these things, it's time. I've been working here for 10 years. You know, like it's time I get my own. I got to look out for me. And that's where I think you mentioned the rationalizing where you're trying to kill the conscience by, you know what I mean? Utilizing that and saying, this is what I'm going to be doing. Right. I would assume. Absolutely. And, you know, let's add another factor. If you own a practice and you have 10 staff and you ask each of them how much they think you took home, Probably on average, the answer they give would be double what you actually take. In other words, staff chronically overestimate the doctor's profitability, which plays right into what you said about rationalization. She will never miss the money is, is a rationalization. Yeah. So then, David, how often does this happen? Embezzlement? Because like I said, we hear about it a lot, especially at the beginning. You know, you want to trust your employees, you hire them. What are some red flags we should be looking out for when we're in the hiring process? Things like that. Let's start with doing a proper workup before you hire somebody. Mm-hmm. And to me, a proper workup includes a few things. I mentioned criminal records check already. It astounds me. It absolutely astounds me that most dentists do not do drug testing when they hire people. And you're in a profession where you hold the keys to the medicine cabinet. Yeah. You know, if I had a drug problem, where I'd really want to work is like a normal surgery practice or maybe a perio practice where drug prescriptions leave the, leave the practice like candy goes out of my house at Halloween. I can't think of a better place for me to work if I had a drug issue. Mm-hmm. So, so that'll be the first thing. Drug test. test. Criminal records test, drug test. You mentioned social media a minute ago, and I'll, I'll turn that into part of what should be your due diligence when you hire somebody. You can learn a lot about somebody from social media. Part of it is just a chance to see them kind of communicating in, a, in an unstructured way and deciding if you like it. Mm-hmm. It's also a chance to see some high-risk lifestyle factors, maybe somebody who's appears to be living beyond their means, somebody who bashes their current employer. You know, my, I hate my job, my boss is an asshole. If you hire that person, they're going to be saying that about you, Ferris. So social media is a, a, a really rich place to get to know somebody better before you make a hiring decision. Other things you should, one of the, one of the biggest ones is speak with former employers. I was talking to a group of new practice owners last year and we were on this topic and one of the, one of the guys in the group put up his hand and said, well, I always check references. And I said to him, the mere fact that you use the word references tells me you're barking up the wrong tree. It is not even remotely important to me what somebody's eighth grade teacher or their high school basketball coach think about them. Mm-hmm. The only people I want to hear about are, are, I want to hear from are former employers. And my rule is very simple. You need to talk to everybody that this employee has worked for for at least the past five years. 
Okay. So for the past five years, why five years? Because that's long enough. To, the, the typical dental employee in five years has, has had a couple of different jobs. This means you get it at least a couple of perspectives. And it also gives you a chance to do things like verify continuity of employment. So let's say I work for you for three years and either I'm, I'm not stealing from you or I am and you don't realize it, but I leave the job with you. I go to work for somebody else and I last six months and they catch my hand in the cookie jar. They fire me. Now I'm applying somewhere else. My next employer, I'm fine with him calling you because you think I'm great. What I don't want him to do is call my last boss because, because she fired me and certainly will not have nice things to say about me. So I may do things like alter dates on my resume mm-hmm. to pretend that I worked for you for three and a half years. So you really want to find those last couple of employers at a minimum. Now, if somebody's only worked for one person for 20 years, you know, it's a, it's a little harder to get multiple perspectives on them, but then we need to be pretty insistent on knowing why somebody would leave a job that they've been in for 20 years and come knocking on your door. Yeah. Okay. That's really good. Is, is to be skeptical. You know, hiring's, hiring's hard. If you ask 20 dentists, you know, how many of you enjoy hiring staff? Normally you will see absolutely no hands up when you ask that question. I mean, dentists categorically hate hiring. And it's like any other job that you hate. You know, when a shortcut appears, you take it. And I hate mowing the lawn. And if I'm mowing the lawn and my teenage son wanders by, I suddenly have a shortcut, don't I? Your turn. Now, you know, the, he's, he's not quite as careful as me and, you know, the flowers take a little bit of a beating and whatever, but I'm out of the job I don't like. <laughs> That's kind of how dentists approach hiring. And you see that apparently perfect candidate in front of you. And what you don't tend to do is look the gift horse in the bike husbands. Say, <laughs> what, if, what if what this person's telling me isn't completely true? So we need to be skeptical. Um, some other things that you might do one big one in employment screening is to check somebody's credit history. There are, there may be restrictions in, in different states as to what you could do it. In some states, testing must be job related. In other words, if they're, if they're working front office, you can do it. If they're working back office, you might not be able to. So check your state law before you start down this path. But if somebody has bad credit, then that doesn't mean don't hire them. What it means is you now need to put your detective hat on and try to understand why they have bad credit and decide if that constitutes a risk to the practice. Sometimes people's credit is trashed because of, you know, some identifiable factor. I mean, maybe it's somebody who at 40 years old went back to college and they suddenly for three years had no income that, you know, were kind of stretching to, to make their bills. <laughs> and I, you know, I understand that and, and it, in fact, admire it because that's somebody who wants to move themselves forward. On the other hand, you're looking at hiring somebody to be your office manager and they live in a big house and they have two SUVs in the driveway and, you know, they take a lot of trips and they have bad credit. That terrifies me. That's somebody whose whole existence is, is financed with borrowed money. And when their other sources of borrowed money evaporate, you're going to be next. Yeah, that's good. That's really, really good to, to look into. So it's drug test, criminal record test, number one. Do social media, number two, right? Look into their social media. Three, check their former employers for the past five years, right? And at the same time, well, that's like just a side note. Be skeptical when hiring, right? Like always, we want to be skeptical. What is sure. telling me isn't true? That's the question you have to keep asking yourself. A hundred percent. I don't know why I never thought about that, David, where it's like, they're trying to get this job. Of course, they're going to put their, like their best impression forward, yeah. you know? 
Yeah, and, and best impression's okay. In fact, we want that. You know, the person who shows up for a job interview, um, you know, in a ripped T-shirt and, and uh, jeans and bare feet isn't doing their best. We fully expect people to do their best, but we expect them to do their best in a truthful way. It, it may be little things. I mean, sometimes, let's say you're hiring an office manager for your practice. And, and I worked at another practice and my job was receptionist. You know, a lot of times when I hand you my resume, it's going to list my title in the previous place as office manager. And if you're a little bit casual about checking out my background and speaking with my former employer, you're not going to realize that little uh, fib that I, that I put on you. Now, you know, maybe it all works out and I, you know, I'm a confident person and I turn out to be a great employee, but I lied to you. I mean, I started our whole relationship by lying <laughs> when it, when it gave me what I perceive to be an advantage. So if that's my personality, let's say that the deposit is $400 short today, either because I stole the money or, you know, somebody messed up the give change to somebody. Will I lie to you then because it will keep me out of trouble? Yeah, probably. Yeah. So that's something to super always keep in mind when hiring. And then the last one was check someone's credit history, right? When hiring, where can we go to do that? Your bank can do it for you. Um, in a lot of states, the person applying can sign a consent and you can use that consent to go to the credit reporting agencies because they're only a couple of, that's something your, your HR advisors can really help you set up. Another thing I'd encourage is it's a really, really good idea to have an application form. So somebody wants to work for you, you know, the normal process is they submit their resume and a cover letter. Mm -hmm. What I would rather do is have them complete a form. And completing a form does a couple of things for you. First of all, it, it kind of homogenizes everybody's information. In other words, we're not influenced by who has the prettiest resume. The second thing it does is it makes sure that all the questions that you want answered are answered. And the third thing is it's a place where they can give you their consent for the, the various background screenings that you want to do. In other words, that's where somebody can agree that you're going to be able to do a criminal records check. And they're going to agree that you could contact former employers and so on. And you, in a legal sense, you don't necessarily need those agreements. However, the whole purpose of pre-employment screening is to wash out unsuitable people at the earliest possible opportunity. So, you know, you tell people there's going to be a drug test. And if somebody's sitting in front of you in an interview, they're, they realize they're not going to pass a drug test you'll never hear from them again, which is perfect. In fact, it would be even better when you post the job to tell potential applicants that there will be a drug test. And that way, certain people will just self-eliminate. And what you don't want to do is over-invest in somebody and then find out at the very end of the process that they're unsuitable. That was just a, a waste of resources. There is, though, one more thing I want to mention about employment screen. <laughs> one of the big mistakes dentists make is they don't pin the identities of the people down who they're interviewing. So I'm interviewing you for a job. What I'm going to say to you is, Michael, I just need to check a piece of government issued photo ID and two secondary identifications. And I do that right in the job interview. Hmm. For the secondary, I'll accept almost anything. I mean, a gym membership, a library card, a student card, a credit card, whatever. It just has to have your name on. But if I'm applying for a job and I have some baggage that I don't want my soon-to-be employer to know about, one of the easiest ways to do it is take somebody else's identity. You know, if I have a brother who's a year younger than me, and let's say that I've got, uh, I've got some dirt in my background and the brother's clean, it's the easiest thing in the world for me to get a fake driver's license and show up and, and pretend to be my brother. Actually, I'm, I'm not even expecting to be asked for that driver's license. And doing this at the interview is a great chance to catch people unprepared. 
most of the time, if people have fake ID, it's just one. In other words, fake ID costs money. Yeah. So, you know, somebody will get a fake driver's license, but they will think, okay, I also need a credit card. You know, I need, I need backup for the driver's license. So that's why the three pieces of ID. So three so, pieces of ID. Yeah. Start there. And, you know, somebody shows up without any of this stuff, you know, or they claim not to have it. Then what's going through my mind is, okay, so you drove here to the interview without your driver's license. You have no credit card. You know, if your if your uh, car breaks and you need a tow, you have no way of paying the tow truck owner. I'm starting to get a little skeptical. Yeah. And that's what you want. You want to be skeptical, right? Well, I want to flag people who don't belong. And yeah, the person who, who you know, drives a 12 miles across town for an interview with me and does not have their driver's license with them. I, I'm already questioning their judgment at best. And that worst, I'm considering the possibility that maybe they aren't exactly who they claim to be. Yeah. When this happens, let's just say they don't come up with the IDs, right? Other red flags. Obviously, we're not going to hire them. We're like, nope, this is not a good thing. Do we confront them or do we just like not even call them back? Do we warn others about them? How do we deal with that? You get into some shaky legal ground there fairly quickly. There's a law called the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And one of the things it requires is if you turn somebody down for a job, it generally you have to be prepared to tell them why. That's normally limited to sort of adverse information that you find. So, you know, if you if you do a criminal records check and you find out that somebody has a criminal record that concerns you, and I'll to be clear, not every criminal record would be a barrier to hiring in my mind. In other words, if you're interviewing me and I, you know, let's say I got arrested for marijuana possession 25 years ago at college, and I think, you know, I'm a model citizen since, that probably wouldn't bother me. On the other hand, um, you know, uh, forgery two years ago should be a showstopper. So when I'm getting adverse information like that, and if I end up not hiring you, and you asked me, well, David, why didn't you hire me? You have to be prepared to tell them. So, you know, I found out you had a criminal record and, and the criminal record is relevant to the job. And for that reason, we're not hiring. And also, what I mentioned that application form that you have. There's typically, and some states don't permit this, but in states where you can, there's typically a question about, do you have a criminal record? Hmm. So if somebody ticks no to that box and then I find out the answer is yes, among other things, they've already lied to me. So if your research uncovers something adverse, most of the time you have to assume that you can be compelled to give that information to the applicant. If it's just a gut feeling you have, you don't really have to say that. You can simply say, we found somebody a, a little bit closer to what we want, or, you know, we've decided to keep looking for a little while. You can, you can be a lot more obtuse, but if, if, if it's information that you went and specifically got from a third party, in most cases, the Fair Credit Reporting Act compels you to be ready to give that to somebody. If they ask, you don't have to initiate it. And, and I wouldn't. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so only if they ask. Now, this is the hiring process, right? For when we're bringing someone on, mainly we're talking to startups, right? Or people who are bringing someone on new. What if we've already brought someone on, David, and then they're working, right? But then you start, somebody's listening to this episode and then they're like, you know what? I think something might be happening in my practice. What steps can we take to prevent this from someone who's already been, maybe th what happened was number one, right? Where their financials uh, or their finances was like, I I'm struggling now. Inflation, all these things, I need something. Obviously we can't have a raise. Now they're starting to kind of like, you know, what steps can we take? Yeah, and let's be clear that 
the majority of people who have financial problems don't pick stealing as the solution. It's a relatively small number who do that. So let's not assume that the mere fact that somebody's struggling financially means that they're helping themselves to your money. But if, if you're concerned, and, and normally concern will come when you see multiple indicators of embezzlement. So it might be somebody who's working the odd hours we talk about who refuses to take vacation and you know they're struggling financially because their spouse lost his job six months ago. Typically, you, you would not, I don't want people to overreact to one indicator. My dad, who's now 80, he's going to be 89 years old this year. He's an attorney. He retired at age 85. Now, from probably age 75 to 85, he never took a vacation. It wasn't because he was embezzling. It was because if he took vacation, my mom wasn't healthy enough for them to travel. So if dad took vacation, what would happen is he would end up sitting home with mom. And they sort of built their marriage around constraining the amount of time they spent together. And my dad just wasn't prepared to push the envelope. And, you know, it's a, it's a mildly humorous story. But the real point is the mere fact that somebody refuses to take vacation doesn't mean they're stealing. Okay. Right. So we, we, we can't be Pavlovian here and respond with a knee jerk to, you know, any perceived symptom of embezzlement. Now, if you told me, okay, that person who doesn't take vacation is also working extra hours and they appear to be living beyond their means and they're pretty territorial about their job. You know, they, they're really busy, but they don't want to devolve any of their responsibilities to anybody else. Okay. Now my, now my antennae are starting to stick up. When you get to that point, the best advice I can give you is call an expert. A lot of the things that dentists do or want to do in the situation where they're suddenly concerned about a staff member are dead wrong. For example, some dentist, and I was talking to somebody yesterday, he was starting to see some anomalies in his uh, stuff. So he went to the staff member, you know, he went to his office manager and he confronted her. And doing that is an absolute no-win situation. If she's not stealing in that case, then you've alienated her. I mean, you're going you're gonna to poison the work relationship. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and if she is stealing, she may retaliate. I mean, she may... And, and I saw this in one case, she may burn the practice down. She may, you know, make an OSHA or a HIPAA complaint against you. And when those things happen, you can't fire somebody. I mean, if, 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 I, make a, if I make an OSHA complaint against you, I'm protected under whistleblower provisions. First of all, you have to deal with OSHA, which is never fun. And second, you can't fire. So the time to confront people is when you know things, not when you're hoping to fight things out. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, because I would, I would assume like... You know, you're like, okay, you know what? I know her. I know him. They'll let me know. We'll, we'll talk about it. We'll go through the hard times. And maybe they just need a couple hundred bucks that I can give to them. So I would be like, I would assume and, and talk to them, you know? And, but that's not, that's not the best thing, right? No, and certainly when there's, you know, when there's an ounce of dishonesty from a staff member, fire them. I've had lots of dentists who have had, you know, they've caught somebody stealing $300 out of pity cash. And they've given them a really good scolding and maybe a written caution. And the person keeps their job, you know, and the doctor decides that's, that's best. And I, I will say most dentists are, are real altruists and they, they really are looking for the best in people, which is admirable, except when it comes to certain HR issues. So you catch somebody stealing and you give them a stern talking to. What they really learned from that is I've got to get better at it. I've got to find a way to do it that my boss won't find. That's the typical reaction, not, you know, wow, I dodged a bullet and uh, I'm not going to jail, so I'll never do that again. 
Wow. Has that ever happened? Or because this funny you bring this up. We asked a question not that long ago about this, right? Where somebody was, um, I don't know, has this ever happened in your situation, David, where they were using the Amazon account for the practice and buying, you know, themselves birthday stuff, holiday stuff, things like that. And then, um, you know, the, the practice owner's like, what are you doing, right? And then they're like, sorry, I'm so sorry. I, you know, I'm just going through hard times. This, Okay, it's fine, right? Yeah. Do you just give them a warning? I mean, I know right now we said no, no, never give them a warning. Could it ever come back to that or no? It's just get rid of them. You know, the, the way I would describe this honestly, and, and let's go back, Michael, to those, those three preconditions being pressure, opportunity, and rationalization. <laughs> um, you know, we've all probably had financially tough times in our lives. Certainly anybody who spent four years in dental school paying hundreds of thousands of dollars of tuition understands what it's like to have empty pockets. Most people in that situation won't resort to stealing as the solution. A few will. When you keep somebody like that on, they're a time bomb. Sooner or later in their life, they're going to be under pressure again. And they've already shown that their response to that pressure is to steal. Mm-hmm. So, so get rid of them. No question. If you, if, if you catch somebody stealing $300 from you, there's no soul searching necessary. They need to be fired. They will do more later and they'll be better at it than they were the first time. Does prosperity do that? Like, for example, let's just say I hired you, you find people, and then I'm like, okay, I need to fire them. Can you do it for me or no? Uh, we'll help you. you. You really need to do the termination yourself, but we'll, a lot of times we'll even draft a script that you more or less read to somebody. And often we have exterior motivations in this as well. I mean, a lot of times what we want is the person to confess. Mm-hmm. Partly because it will make you feel much better if they do, and partly because it will help get them put in jail. So we're after a confession, and we'll help you script an exit interview that is probably a lot more likely to produce that confession than what you might left to your own devices. Has it ever been a situation where the person just doesn't confess, and you've, I mean, you got every single piece of evidence on them, and they're just still like, no, I don't know, you're lying or something. Has that ever happened? Of course. Let's think about what a sociopath is. Mm-hmm. And a, a sociopath is really, I mean, there are the definition that the um, psychiatrist uses a little bit different than this, but my definition of a sociopath is it's somebody who can rewrite history in their own version and believe it's true. So you know what a polygraph is, a lie detector. Polygraphs don't work with sociopaths. What polygraphy measures is a physiological reaction that you have to the stress of lying. And that only happens if you think you're lying. If you think you're telling the truth, there's no physiological response. So that's why polygraphs are generally not admissible in court anymore, because sociopaths can pretty routinely beat them. Okay, I didn't know that. That's interesting. When you, you know, if, if what you're dealing with is a sociopath, then they will lie to you with an incredible amount of conviction because they've convinced themselves that the lie is true. In fact, a lot of thieves have some elements of, of, sociopathy, and also some elements of narcissism. There's a behavioral condition known as a narcissistic sociopath. That fits the profile of a lot of embezzlers. Narcissistic sociopath. This is interesting. This is, and it's true. It's kind of like um, you're gaslighting yourself and then you believe in it, right? Where you're like, yeah, everybody got to believe, and you're trying to force that other person to believe you. And you don't even have to force them. I mean, you're, you're, you're speaking from a position of, I have rewritten 
history in my own mind in a way that suits me. As far as I'm concerned, that's what happens. How often, David, do you feel like you come across someone like this in your line of work? Good question. Probably a third of the embezzlers you see would fit that category. Man, that's because this is scary. You know what I mean? Like thinking if I was listening to this, I'd be like, oh, my gosh, I might have a narcissistic sociopath in my team. Yeah. You know, people probably hand that diagnosis out a little bit freely. With these people, it's pretty noticeable. What are some like super mega signs where you can like notice it where you're like, that's not that's not right. Well, as I said, people who lie to you, people who will tell you their own version of the truth because it helps them. Somebody messed up. I mean, let's say they, you know, they, they forgot to, you know, they didn't bill an insurance company for work that was done. And now it's too late because you have a certain amount of time with insurance companies to submit a claim. So somebody does that, you know, they don't want to go back to the patient and ask for money that insurance should have covered. And they don't want to go to the doctor to say, look, I screwed up, you know, this, this claim was sent in, but then they want to read graphs and I didn't send it back and dive it. And now it's too late. You know, nobody, nobody wants to have that conversation with a doctor, but if you're an employee with integrity, you will come to the doctor with what happened and you'll say, look, I messed up. And the consequence of all this is that the patient owes us money that they shouldn't have to pay. And I'd, I'd like you're okay to write that money off. I mean, that's, that would be doing it with integrity. The sociopath will just, you know, will will make a write-off. They may even try to do it in a way that the doctor won't see it. And now they've sort of fixed the problem, but without coming clean about the fact that they caused it. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, interesting. This is interesting stuff, David. Transitioning a little bit here right now, what have you seen have been the most common cases when it comes to like embezzlement? Does it, is it small things? Just one big lump of things? Like what are the most common cases? Um, it, it's a lot more like a dripping tap than a broken pipe. So embezzlers will start very small. They often will start kind of experimentally. You know, they'll, they'll take a little bit like a, you know, $150 or something to see if somebody notices. And as they get a little more confident in their stealing, the number will climb. And it typically plateaus at between 2 and 4% of what the doctor collects each month. So if you have a practice collecting $100,000 a month, you know, it's, I would expect an embezzler in that practice to be stealing between two and 4,000. One thing I want to mention that, that probably hasn't occurred to a lot of the audience, you know, when, when I talk to dentists initially about embezzlement, what they're really thinking about is the theft of cash, like $20 mm-hmm. bills. And cash is the first choice of every thief. That's, that's their best way to steal. But there's a very long-term trend that the amount of cash that most practices take in has been in, in decline for a long time. And thieves adapt. And their adaptation is they've learned how to cash checks with the doctor's name on them. They've learned how to steal credit card payments that patients are making. For security reasons, I'm not going to get into a whole lot of detail about how those things happen. But I can tell you that we see theft of checks probably 50% of the cases we look at. Maybe 10 or 15% of the cases we look at, we see theft of credit card payments or direct deposits into the doctor's bank. So what I want the audience to understand here is that any form of payment to you can be stolen. There's no safe haven there. Gotcha. Anything like any perimeters we can put up right now for to make sure like, you know what I mean? To make it easier that we can catch this. Yeah, there is. And it's really basic. The practice management software that's in every one of your practices (laughs) is probably more important to your financial well-being than your handbooks. 
And yet I see very few doctors who have any kind of ability to get information out of their software. Gotcha. So familiarize yourself with it then. Well, that's the start. The next thing is this. You need to, on a daily basis, you need to, to get and review. Um, it has different names and different practice management softwares, but let's call it your summary report. So software at the end of your day will print a report and the report will tell you, here are the fees you build, here are the adjustments that were made, and here are the payments you received. You need to spend probably 10 minutes at the end of each day looking at that report and making sure that it lines up with what you did today. In other words, did you do a three-surface filling that ended up getting coded in the software as a two-surface? Not that that's embezzlement necessarily, but it certainly costs you money. Mm-hmm. You know, was there that kind of mistake? Make sure you understand the adjustments. And adjustments are a way of reducing a patient's balance that's not monitor. So for example, if, if we're talking about a PPO patient and your normal fee for something is $200, but the PBO pays $120, then you're going to have an $80 adjustment on that. So you need to look at the adjustments, which really represent foregone money, and understand why and make sure you agree with it. And the third thing from that report is that the amount of money you collected should equal to the penny, the amount that gets deposited at the bank. So if you start there, that's probably the best thing you can do. And here's how thieves think. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that equality of what was collected against what, what got deposited. And I could tell you, Michael, that probably 80% of your peers don't look at that. If I'm a thief and I work for you and you don't know how much money should be going into the bank today, I can be the dumbest, laziest thief on the planet and steal from you because all I have to do is divert some of the deposit to my account. You will be oblivious. On the other hand, if I think that's something you're looking at. I can't just have a deficiency at the end of the day. Then what I need to do is I need to make practice management software lie, which isn't that hard to do. But looking at that report that I told you about, that's the best way to spot that lie. You can't be an absentee owner in your own practice. You can't show up and go in your operatory and do good dentistry all day. And two minutes after the last patient is done in your operatory, you're flying out the door. If that's the life you want, Go work for a DSO or be an associate seller. If you're going to be a practice owner, then you have to run the practice as opposed to it running you. And part of that means that you need to put in a little bit of time that's to see what's going into your software and whether it makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. I, and you know what? That last part right now, when you mentioned, it makes me think of the pets that I worked at. She would always be the one to pull the summary reports and then give it to the doctor. Then she would review it at the end of the week. And so now I'm thinking like, oh my gosh, she probably adjusted, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. And again, I won't go into details. One one strong recommendation that I have though is not only do you need to look at reports, but the reports you look at should be ones that you printed yourself. When you allow somebody else to print a report for you, whenever I generate a report, the software asks me what the parameters are. In other words, is this for the whole practice or only certain providers? What time period is it for? Things like that. When, whenever somebody else fills in that stuff, it's relatively easy for them to deceive you about what happened. In other words, it's possible for them to show you less than the whole practice. And have you think you're looking at everything. So when I say familiarity with the software, I'm saying go and print your own damn report and look at that. And then you know that the information you have has integrity. Yeah. 
I like that. I like that. David, thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure. But before we say goodbye or anything like that, can you tell our listeners where they can find you and any last piece of advice? Sure can. Before I answer the question about how to reach me, there's one other thing I want to mention. When somebody calls us and asks us to take a look at their practice, we do it in a way that's completely undetectable to the staff. So staff have absolutely no idea that we're we're taking a look. And that's really important. The other thing is I'd encourage any of the audience members who have concerns to pick up the phone and call us. We'll happily talk to them for half an hour, understand what their concerns are, and then help them map out a course of action. Nice. Okay. Just a couple of ways you can do it. Our website is www.prosperident.com. P-R-O-S, like Sierra, P-E-R-I-D-E-N-T, like Prosperity for Dentists. And our phone number is 888-398-2327. So 888-398-2327. Either of those is a good way to get a hold of us. As I say, always happy to talk to a dentist who, who wants to learn more, has concerns. And if there's something we can do to help them after that, we're happy. Yeah. This has been very, very useful. Very interesting, too. Really, really good to know a lot about this. Um, guys, if you want to reach out to David, just go in the show notes below. And um, all his contact information is going to be there. So feel free to pick his brain, jump on the phone with him. And David, thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure. And we'll hear from you soon. Thank you, Michael. Guys, thank you so much for tuning in. I hope this episode really helped you out. I know you might be thinking, I know I was, I was like, do I have a, is somebody stealing from me now? Like, you know what I mean? So it's really good to start diving into this a little bit more with your detective hat on, right? Especially when you're hiring and so forth. Such a great episode. David, thank you so much for being on the podcast with us. I feel like it would be a, such a cool podcast to discuss like the, the cases that you've gone through, but I don't know if that's a thing. I don't know if you're allowed to, things like that, but really, really great episode. We appreciate that. If you guys have any questions or concerns for David, go in the show notes below and, uh, you know, click on his links, reach out to him. And since you're in the show notes already, guys, don't forget to support the podcast. And the best way you can support this podcast is by checking out our sponsors. Uh, if you want to, like I said, cloud-based dental software. CareStack is one of our sponsors. Dandy is one of our sponsors. They're giving you guys a free scanner, right? So that's fantastic. And then at the same time, Mango Voice, if you're looking for a VoIP service or phones or anything like that, Mango Voice is one of our sponsors as well. And they are doing fantastic things, by the way, for startups. So look out for that. Uh, huge, huge news, breaking news coming soon, specifically for startups. So I'm excited to announce that with them. But guys, thank you so much for tuning in. I truly appreciate it. And I will talk to you in the next episode. <laughs>